Aristotle, Socrates, Kant, Hume, Kierkegaard, all consumed with the same question. What makes right and wrong? How do we define what is morally good and what is morally bad? Is it subjective or objective, internal or external, divine or human? The biblical book of Judges is a chronicle of what happened when each individual determined right and wrong for himself, when each one did what was right in his own eyes, when morality was in the eye of the beholder. Good morning. Are we ready for our last installment in the book of Judges? Wow. Well, your attitude's awful this morning. How about that? Um, I'm excited to be here this morning. I'm glad I missed the last couple weeks, so just good to see your faces and and good to be back. And, And I'm excited to to do this last message in this series called Eye of the Beholder. We're at the end of about a 430-year journey. We've kind of skipped some chunks in there, but uh, this moment that Israel has been in this cycle of disobedience and God has begun to raise up judges uh, to deliver them from these foreign oppressors. And today we take a look at one of the very last judges. And then after this judge, uh, there's kind of this transition between this era of the judges into the monarchy in Israel, and that will mean eventually David as king in, in Israel, but we're going to kind of finish up with, with, a, with our very last judge today. Before we get there, I want to do just a little bit of family business, and it's this. Um, next week, uh, next Sunday, is Kevin Chan's last Sunday on staff with us here at Bayview Glen Church, and so uh, we're going to do a couple things. One is uh, what we've done is just part of tradition here at Bayview Glen, we've done a, a, quite a few times in the past, is that when a pastor transitions off staff, we give them a financial gift, and so uh, just outside those doors next Sunday after both services. Uh, There'll be receptacles there where you can drop off a check or cash or whatever. Don't make those checks out to Bayview Glen because they're not tax deductible. Just make them out to Lucas Cooper and um, (laughs) we'll be able to give Kevin a financial gift. No, we'll we'll give Kevin and Grace a a financial gift. So you uh, are welcome to do that and do that generously next week. The second thing is uh, after both services, they'll be out in that little alcove out there, Kevin and Grace and, and some of their children. And so I don't even know how many they have anymore. It's just like a lot. Uh, no, they have four. Uh, and they'll be out there in that alcove where you can give hugs and tell Kevin thank you for his time here at Bayview Glen Church. So remember uh, where we have come from in this series. Uh, and this has kind of been our theme verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And the author of Judges reminds us over and over that in those days, there's no king in Israel, not just no physical king, but they didn't honor God as the divine king. So what that meant was everybody did what was right in his or her own eyes. That is to say, morality was in the eye of the beholder. And what that meant was total and complete chaos in Israel. And if you've been journeying with us over the course of this series, what we've seen is God's people descend into this moral depravity that really is quite beyond comprehension. It's like Lord of the Flies. It's like Heart of Darkness. It's like Apocalypse Now. I mean, it is really like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I just 
threw a lot of stuff at you. You might not even know what those things are, but uh, read them and, or watch the movies and you'll know. So, I mean, it is just moral depravity even beyond our ability to explain. And what God has done in, the, in this process is raised up a judge that has become a deliverer for his people, the nation of Israel. And today's judge we're going to be looking at is a man named Samson. You may have heard of Samson before. He gets a lot of publicity, even in popular culture these days, uh, more so than Othniel and Ehud, that's for sure. And when we think of Samson, what I want us to think of is potential. I want us to think of that word potential. And that word potential is one of the most dangerous words on the planet. Because Samson was given so many opportunities as a Nazarite, he was set apart by God for a particular purpose, a very unique birth and supernatural strength and all of these things that gave him the potential to be a great leader in Israel, but he squandered that potential, as we'll see here pretty shortly. Uh, the Bible in, in, in the book of Judges covers the life of Samson over four chapters. We won't be able to get to all the details of all those four chapters, but we're going to hit a couple of highlights, and what we're going to do is first pull out some principles that might help to kind of govern our own lives today and some big principles that might be applicable to you right here, right now, or tomorrow morning at work, and then hopefully give you some level of context, right? Some level of context for uh, reading those chapters on your own and gleaning some of God's truth on your own. You'll get a little bit of a picture of what's going on there. Now, the other thing that I want to tell you about Samson is, is that he's a little bit of a half in, half out kind of guy. He's a little bit like, you know, it happens to me right about this time of year. At the end of the day when I get in bed and I cover myself up and like I feel like the covers are too hot. You ever feel that way? It's like it's too warm, right? So what do you do? Kick the covers off. Easy. But then it's too cold. You know what I mean? And then what do you do? Covers back on. And it's too hot. And what do you do? Kick them off again. And Amy's going, why don't you stay still? You know, I'm like, I can't figure out whether I'm hot or cold. And then I do the one thing that all of us do when we can't figure out whether we're too hot or too cold. Tell me you don't do this. One leg in and one leg out. And all of a sudden you're like, ah, that's nice. My leg's working together. One of them frosty cold and the other one sweating. But when they work together, I mean, I feel great about this. But here's the deal. It might work in bed, but it doesn't work in the Christian life. You can't be a one leg in, one leg out kind of Christian. And it's Samson was kind of a one leg in, one leg out kind of guy when it came to God. He, he, he couldn't quite make up his mind. He was trying to, pardon the expression here, but ride two horses with one butt. And it doesn't work all that well. Samson was a one leg in, one leg out kind of guy. So we're going to learn from Samson's life and hopefully glean some truth. And, and I want you to know that at the end of our time today, in about 35 minutes or so, I'm going to call you to commitment. If you've never responded to the good news about Jesus before, you're going to get an opportunity to respond to him today, to respond to that invitation and say yes to him. Second is I would like to call you out if you're one of those one leg in, one leg out kind of Christians. Because again, it works when you're trying to manage your own temperature, but it doesn't work when you're trying to walk with God. That one leg in, one leg out thing doesn't work. 
So I'm gonna call you to renew your commitment in, in, uh, to faith in Christ. So if that's you, I just want you to know that that's coming at the end of our time today. So here's what we're gonna take a look at in the life of Samson. Judges chapter 13 is his birth narrative. It's how Samson was born. We'll take a look at that real briefly here in a moment. Judges chapter 14 and 15, he's gonna engage in a fight with the Philistines. Um, I did this so we could be alliterative. That word is fight with the Philistines. You didn't think that was, a, even the first service thought that was a stupid joke. I like this joke. Do you not like this joke? You don't know what humor is. That's Judges 14 and 15. Judges 16 is the death of Samson, and we'll look at that as well. Before we get to that birth narrative of Samson, it's really, really critical that we understand that the nation of Israel is in a cycle of disobedience. Do you remember the cycle here? The cycle of oppression, the cycle of disobedience. And here's what that looks like. The nation of Israel serves God, and then they sin. And when I say sin, I mean like child sacrifice, ritual prostitution, really nasty stuff. And then God sends in a foreign oppressor in order to enslave them. And then after a while, Israel cries out to God and says, Oh God, we're tired of being enslaved by this foreign oppressor. So God raises up a judge, a leader, hence the name of our book, Judges, a leader in Israel in order to deliver them. And then once they're delivered from this foreign oppressor, once they're freed from this foreign oppressor, they go back to serving God again and the cycle repeats. And again, over the course of about 430 years, that cycle repeats 12 times. Now, we're going to read the very beginning of Samson's life, the birth account of Samson, and you're going to see and hear some familiar things in this account. You're going to see and hear this cycle start to kind of come to the surface. But as we read the birth account of Samson, I want you to listen for what's missing. Because there's one critical thing from that cycle that's missing. And see if you can determine what that is. The Bible reads this way, Judges chapter 13, verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Has this just become a broken record for us over the last several weeks? We know this thing. This is what they've done a thousand times. Okay, So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines. Here's that foreign oppressor for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. That's all kinds of different things, including but not limited to like shellfish and sushi, which actually is kind of a good idea now if you're pregnant. Don't drink alcohol. Don't eat sushi. Yeah. Okay. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for this child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. We're going to get back to Samson here in a minute, a couple of things we know about Samson from this initial birth account, but I want you to look back at our cycle and see if you can determine what's missing here. Israel did not cry out to the Lord. Did you hear it? It's interesting because they were serving the Lord, but then they sinned. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord again. And then God sent the Philistines to enslave them. And there is silence when it comes to Israel crying out to God. And yet God is going to raise up a judge anyway, even though they haven't asked for it. Can I just tell you something about the character of God this morning? Is that God often responds even when we haven't called. Do you know that about God? 
I would like you to see in the story of Samson God's extraordinary grace, that he shows us favor, goodness, and kindness even when we didn't deserve it, that he raises up for us deliverance and freedom even when we haven't asked for it. I know some of the stories of the people in this room and you would say to me, I was not crying out to God, but God came to rescue me. I was not crying out to God to get out of this unhealthy relationship, but he came and rescued me. I was not crying out to God to get out of this job that was very, very difficult, but he came to rescue me. I was not crying out to God in repentance and faith and asking him to forgive my sin, but he came and showed up and rescued me. He responded even when I didn't call. Can you see the extraordinary grace of God here? Uh, Israel has been in this cycle over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yet you would assume that God would go, that's it. Like, you're not even asking for my help anymore. But the New Testament says, even when we are faithless, God remains what? Faithful. Right? Because he can't be faithless unto himself. He keeps his promises even when we don't keep ours. That's really, really, really good news. Here's the second thing we learn about Samson. It's very interesting. It says that he will be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Uh, this is not like a complicated thing. It's a big deal, but it's not a complicated thing. It just means that Samson is kind of set aside for a particular purpose of God. God's got a purpose for Samson, and from the time that he's born, he's going to be a Nazarite unto God, set aside for a particular purpose. And there are three things that Samson would avoid as a Nazarite. Here they are. He would avoid wine carcasses and haircuts that's just it and not just wine but anything made from grapes he would steer clear of that because he was a Nazarite set apart for God's purposes he would avoid anything dead human or animal and he would not cut his hair those are the things that set him apart as a Nazarite so I want you to remember these things let's just say them together ready no 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 all right, for some of you, you're like, you know what? I would take one or two of those, but uh, not all three. You know, but Samson, he did all three. No wine, no carcasses, no haircuts. Nazarite unto God, set apart for God's purposes. We'll get back to this here in a minute, but it's important for us to remember that these are the commitments that Samson has made for the sake of God's purpose in his life. Okay, so the first thing that happens in Judges chapter 14, now that Samson is born, is that Samson, as an adult, went down to Timnah, and at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. Okay, Samson's got a problem. He's got a big problem. And, and, and that problem is lust. You're going to see it play out over and over through the course of chapters 13 through 16. He ends up visiting prostitutes a couple times. He makes really poor choices and who he engages in romantic relationships with and marriages with. But in this particular case, look what Samson does. Instead of approaching this girl who he should not have approached anyway, right? Because he's supposed to marry from his own clan. He's supposed to marry from the Israelites. Don't intermarry with the Philistines, God said. But he goes, hmm, she's pretty and then what does he do he tells his mom and dad to go talk to her for me like I haven't been doing that since I was in the fifth grade you know what I mean like and I didn't ever ask my mom and dad to do it it was always like my best friend in class go tell her go talk to her see if she likes me let's send her a note check yes no or maybe right 
I'm so grateful that Amy checked yes. I mean, and that was the way that we met each other. No. So Samson sends, sends his parents to go talk to this girl that he really likes. Now, it's interesting because here's what I want you to learn about Samson. And again, we'll see this play out over and over and over. A commentator named J. Vernon McGee, who's like an old school classic uh, Bible scholar, Bible commentator, uh, summed up Samson in this way. And I think this is really extraordinarily funny. So if you don't like it, then whatever. Again, you don't know what humor is, but I think this is really funny. J. Vernon McGee says this about Samson. This fellow was tied to his mama's apron strings like a little sissy, and that is what he was. (laughs) This is like a respectable Bible scholar calling Samson a sissy because Samson can't pony up any of the courage that it takes to even go talk to a girl, much less do what God has called him to do. This is a problem. And it's going to be a problem in Samson's life over and over again. The good news is his father and mother say to him, next slide please, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives? That's not like go marry your sister, like you live in Arkansas or something like that. That's not what that is. It's hey, or among all of our people that you must go to wife of the uncircumcised Philistines. Like you should marry someone from the nation of Israel. But Samson said to his father, get her for me for she is right in my eyes. See, this has been the problem all through the book of Judges, isn't it? I do what's right in my eyes. I don't do what's right in the eyes of God. I don't do what's right according to the law. I don't listen to good counsel when it comes to my mom and dad telling me this was probably not a wise choice to marry somebody. And this is a little bit of a side note, but young men and women of God who are single, I want you to know that who you marry is the second most important decision you will ever make. The most important decision you will ever make is what to do with Jesus. Who you marry is the second most important decision you will ever make. And some of you are making stupid decisions about who you're dating and who you uh, might choose as your spouse. And you're making stupid decisions not because you're a stupid person, but because love makes you stupid. That's just what happens. I actually got an amen in the first service when I said that. (laughs) I mean, please, love makes you stupid. It makes you crazy. We don't, like... You know, even the songs that we sing about love, we talk about falling in love, right? And Beyonce talks about being crazy in love and all this stuff. It's like it just makes us nutso. It makes us make stupid decisions. And in this particular case, it's lust. And Samson goes, I want her. And his parents go, this is a bad idea. And there are some people in your life right now, young young men and women of God, you're dating somebody and the people in your life are going, this is not a good idea. And women, here's how you think most of the time. Most of the time, it's not all the time, but a lot of the time. This is what I hear women say. But he has so much potential. Okay. Like he's awesome at Call of Duty. Okay, I'll give you that. Give you that super great at video games. Yeah. He also has the potential to get a job. He also has the potential to move out of his parents' house. But he's not doing any of those things. Right? And this is the deal with men, is we think with our hormones. We do. We think, Man, she's good looking, and she comes to church. Those are my two requirements, right? That's it. And even the church thing, you know, half the time if she's here, that's cool. And this is what Samson's doing. And it's going to get him in trouble, not just here, but later in his life. Who you marry, it's free for nothing this morning, right? Who you marry is the second most important decision you'll ever make. Please make a wise choice. Okay, 
What happens here, though, is that Samson's father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, that is, his relationship with this Philistine woman, for he was seeking an opportunity, that is, God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So check this out. Here's what's happening. God uses Samson's bad choice for his own purposes. Isn't that crazy? Now look, this is what we know from, clearly from Scripture. God does not tempt anyone. He's not enticing Samson to sin, but even when you sin, God has not lost control. Even when there are leaders in power who are sinful, God has not lost control. Samson is a sinful, broken, busted up man. God is still elevating him to authority and power in Israel for his own purposes, whether Samson knows it or not. He's leveraging Samson's bad choice. He did not cause Samson's bad choice, but he's using it for his own purposes. God is using it as an opportunity to... Uh, to defeat the Philistines. This happens throughout the scripture, I want you to know. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 45, God talks about his anointed one. And we might, not th we might think immediately that that's Jesus. In this particular case, it's not. Isaiah chapter 45, God says this, uh, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and loose the belt of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. God says to Cyrus now, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break into pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of irons. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Now that sounds really good to me. I don't know about you. If God was to go before me and metaphorically uh, level all the rough places and make life easy for me and give me blessing and give me authority and power and influence, that sounds awesome. And that typically sounds like an exchange, like you're a righteous person, a good person, you walk with me, so I'm going to give you this stuff in exchange. But look at the next verse. God says, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you, Cyrus, by your name. I name you, say that with me, though you do not know me. This is a man who is far from God. This prophecy was written 150 years before he was born. Not just a one leg in, one leg out kind of guy like Samson, where there might be a redeeming quality or two. This was a bad person, and God elevated him to power in order to use him for his own purposes. In the case of Samson, in the case of Cyrus, and even now, God is always in control of government. Always. God is always in control of government. And I get tired of Christians who say stuff like, well, it's certainly not the will of God that so-and-so got elected. Really? So you know the mind of God now. Sweet. Make it easier on the rest of us. We'll just ask you. And, and let's, can, can we just, I'm not even going to name names this morning of people that we might think shouldn't be in power. I'm not going to name names. We're just going to spell it, okay? <laughs> T R U. Okay, on three, we'll, I'm not going to spell the whole thing. On three, we'll finish it. One, two, three. Oh, so I heard some Trump and some Trudeau. See, we can't even decide who we want out. Look, look, here's, here's what it comes down to. Can I just tell you, because God is always in control of government, here's a practical application for Christians. Get involved, but don't get inundated. 
please. Vote. I vote, not here. They don't let me vote here. I vote in my home country. So I get involved, talk to people, uh, do your research. But look, sometimes we get inundated and, and, and we get flooded and, and we forget that God is still in control. God is still on the throne and there is no one, not a soul. Now listen very closely. Not a soul in power throughout all of history, all of time, all the world that get, got there outside of the providence and sovereignty of God. Not one. And we panic about it sometimes. I had a friend in, uh, in Phoenix. It was great. He went into the doctor, like 30 years old, healthy guy, went into the doctor and the doctor was like, man, your blood pressure is through the roof. It's like dangerously high. It was like 9 million over like 8 million or something. It was crazy. It's like, you're probably gonna die from high blood pressure. And the doctor said, look, you need to make some lifestyle changes, diet, exercise, sleep, some other things, but a relatively healthy guy. And in four weeks, I need you to come back. So he went away and he made some of those changes. And in four weeks, the doctor came back and he expected that his blood pressure might go to like from red to like orange. And it went from red to green. In four weeks, it's like, how did it go so low? How did it get back to like a healthy way in four weeks? He said, I did everything you asked me to do and I stopped listening to political talk radio. <laughs> Literally, it's a pastor friend of mine in Scottsdale. I'm like, well, Rush Limbaugh stresses everybody out. So that makes sense, right? And we get so inundated with this stuff and we act as if God has lost control somehow. He has not lost control. Okay, let's keep reading the story of Samson. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah and they came to the vineyards of Timnah and behold, a young lion came toward them roaring. Okay, here's the deal. They've gone to the vineyards of Timnah because Samson wants to marry this girl, right? This is the girl that he identified. Go get her for me. Okay, first thing is, they're in the vineyards of Timnah. Do you remember the things that a Nazarite is supposed to avoid? What was the very first thing? Grapes. What is he doing in vineyards? See, he's compromised his Nazarite vow. He's compromised his Nazarite vow. He shouldn't be there. He doesn't think it's that big a deal. It's a little thing. It's not a big thing, it's a little thing. But he's there, and he's compromised it. And, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring, keep going. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, Samson, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I know that sometimes we read this stuff in the Bible and it sounds like incredulous and it's like not really possible. I've been to Africa. Amy and I uh, sponsor a little boy in school in Africa. We were there when he was like 11, 12 years old. He walks to school four miles one way and four miles the other way. He's from a Maasai uh, village there. So, you know, like look like the cover of a National Geographic, like an indigenous people in Africa and he walks to school with a staff and a machete. His name is Ngaratani. I guarantee you, if a lion attacked Ngaratani, he would tear the lion limb from limb. I would hang out with a 12-year-old boy in Africa for my protection, right? So we, we look at this stuff and we're like, because, because of our Western culture, we're like, man, that's incredulous and that's not believable. I've seen men and boys even that could do this. So this really happened, that's what I'm telling you. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. I got another problem again. And after some days, he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. 
Uh, a lot of times, I know this is really gross, but in humid climates, what you get in a carcass is maggots, right? But in very, very dry climates like this one, those bodies dry out very quickly. And a lot of times wasps, hornets, or bees will make a hive inside that carcass. So that's what Samson has noticed, that bees had made a hive inside this lion's carcass and they began to make honey and Samson scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. Do we see a problem? And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Compromise number two, isn't it? I shouldn't have been around grapes, shouldn't have been around carcasses, certainly shouldn't have been eating anything from them. And I want you to know that as Samson's life unfolds here, it begins with small small compromises that lead to big consequences. And that's the reality in your life and mine. You know, an affair starts with small compromises. Uh, a complete uh, disregard of your faith and a walk away from God starts with a single step. If you feel totally far from God and you were once close to him, please don't look back at what has happened in the last 24 hours to try to trace the root of that. See if you can look back to that very small little compromise. Compromise in your financial life. Compromise in how much time you would spend in God's word. Compromise in your prayer life. Compromise in the, you know, I want to sleep in this morning. I'm not going to gather and worship with believers. Those small compromises lead to big consequences. Such is true in the life of Samson and such is true in yours as well. So Samson, at this wedding that he's now having with this Philistine woman gathers all his guests up and he tells them a riddle. And here's what he's kind of doing. He's going to tell them a riddle that they cannot solve in order to get something from them, in order to get something from these Philistines. And they engage in this kind of bet with him because they think, oh, if we solve the riddle, Samson will give some stuff to us. There's an exchange of goods there at stake as to whether the riddle is solved or not. So Samson tells them this riddle, and it's completely manipulative because there's no way that they can solve the riddle. Here's the riddle. He says, out of the came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Do you know what that is? What is it? It's the lion, right? It's the lion. But nobody at this wedding has any idea what's happened with Samson. Remember, because he hasn't told his parents, he hasn't told anybody. So they're going, there is no way we're going to solve this riddle. So after three days, this is what the Philistines do. They go to Samson's new wife and they say, hey, do me a favor, get that answer from Samson to the riddle or we're going to burn you and your father to the ground. It's like, well, that's not good. So eventually she goes to Samson. She says, look, I need the answer to the riddle. Samson gives, them the answer to, gives her the answer to the riddle, passes it on. She passes it on to the Philistines. They eventually win the bet. And Samson's response to them is, you wouldn't have known the answer to the riddle unless you were with my heifer. He's called his wife a heifer. Samson's not a sharp guy. 
And what we see uh, consequently in Judges chapter 15 and 16 is this tit-for-tat retaliatory relationship between Samson and the Philistines. Samson has now uh, manipulated the Philistines with this riddle, this bet. They've threatened to burn his wife and her father to the ground, and it just goes back and forth, and Samson's destroying their property, and then they come after him, and then he kills some of them, and it's just a one-up, 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 one-up. So I just want to summarize all that happens in Judges chapter 14 and 15, and one commentator writes this. The Philistines want Samson for slaughtering their own people, but he had done this because they had killed his wife and father-in-law. But they had done this because he had burned their fields. But he had done this because his father-in-law had given away his wife. True story. But he had done this because Samson had gotten angry and left. But he had done this because his wife had given the riddle's answer to her kinsmen. But she had done this in order to avoid being burnt up by them. I mean, it just goes back and forth. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. By the time chapter 16 rolls around, it begins with Samson's visit to a prostitute, and then he meets a woman named Delilah. Not just meets a woman, but loves a woman named Delilah, who the Philistines will eventually leverage in chapter 16 to put an end to this tit-for-tat relationship. They're going to put an end to this feud by using Delilah and using Samson's lust. He's been blinded by his love for this woman, Delilah. They're going to use her to take Samson's life. Now, I said it before this morning. I will say it again. I want to be really clear. Young men and women of God, who you marry is the second most important decision you'll ever make. Now, That person that you marry may not betray you into the hands of the Philistines who gouge out your eyes and put you to work in a mill. That may not happen. Probably won't happen. But who you marry is going to influence you, is going to shape you in terms of your ministry, in terms of pursuing the kingdom, in terms of your vocation. Please, for the love of God, make good decisions when you're getting married. Please listen to smart people. And you are not smart people when you are in love. There is no 24-year-old on the planet who is in love that makes logical choices. I was not that guy. Amy certainly was not that person. Good grief. That's what happens, and that's okay. Like, it's, it's good to be so in love with someone and so enamored by them, but you can't let that hijack your faith and your logic and, like, your decision-making skills. And there's some of you in the room, I can see you nodding your head right now because I know you've been in those relationships before and they didn't work out all that well. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, God, I pray for the single people in the room because, yeah, that is hard. Yeah, I made bad decisions, and maybe I'm stuck in a marriage I don't want to be in, but I just stay faithful. Or maybe I had a marriage dissolved because I shouldn't have married them in the first place. Please, I love you. I want to see Christ formed in you, and making a good decision as to who you marry is a really, really big deal. Okay, let's talk about Delilah, and then we'll be done. Remember, Samson... He's not supposed to have any wine, 
carcasses. He's already compromised these two, hasn't he? And he's not supposed to do what? Cut his hair. So Delilah comes to Samson and says, Samson, look, you're freakishly strong. Like you tore that line apart. You're killing a bunch of Philistines single-handedly. Like what is the deal here? The reason she's done that is because the Philistines have offered her 1,100 pieces of silver to do it. In other words, money is worth more than Samson is here for Delilah. So Delilah comes to Samson and says, why are you so strong? How is it that the Philistines could like bind you up? Could they actually do that? And he says, you know what? If they take these special kind of ropes and they dry them out, those will work. They'll actually bind me up. So the Philistines take those special kind of robes and they dry them up and they bind up Samson's wrists and then he just breaks them apart like that. No big deal. And kills all those Philistines. And Delilah comes back to him and says, you were joking, weren't you? Samson, you lied to me. And this is the thing, this is the point, like, because she has come to Samson and said, tell me how they can bind you. Then she goes to the Philistines and say, this is how you can bind him. And then the Philistines come to Samson and do exactly what he just told Delilah. Don't you think at this point, Samson should go, I think we should see other people. You know, but he's, because he's dumb. Men, men of God, hormones make you so stupid. They really, they, and I say you, but it's me too. They make us dumb. Four times this happens. Second time, Samson says, don't dry them out. Make them wet. Breaks them, kills the Philistines. Third time, Samson says, well, it's kind of about my hair. So if you weave my hair into a loom, which she does while he's asleep, there's four stakes in the ground and, and Delilah weaves his hair into this loom that he would not have cut, once again, because he's a Nazarite. And then when the Philistines come upon him, he wakes up and pulls the entire loom out of the ground with his hair and then beats them, you know, just beats a tar out of them. And so Delilah finally for the fourth time says, you're really embarrassing me here. I mean, can you believe that, Delilah? You're really embarrassing me. I'm embarrassing you. Oh, man, alive. So she's like, tell me how they can bind you. And he says, really, it's about my hair. If you cut it off, I lose all my strength. Now, we have talked about this, and I've heard people talk about this sometimes, like Samson's hair was magic, right? And that was the source of his strength. Samson's hair was not magic. The Spirit of God had come upon him, and that hair for Samson was the last signifier of his Nazarite vow. Are you with me? He'd already made two compromises. And so this last one, when he actually tells Delilah this and they cut his hair while he's sleeping, it means the spirit of God is no longer empowering him. It's not about magic hair. It's not like Rapunzel or something, right? Like this is not what this is. He, he, he's, he's totally rejected God and totally compromised his vow to God for the sake of whatever. And now Samson can be overtaken by the Philistines and that's exactly what they do. They gouge out his eyes and they enslave him. And let's read the end of the story. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, that means they were drunk, they said, call Samson, then he may entertain us. 
So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. That is to say, they mocked him, made fun of him. He's now devoid of strength. He's now, his eyes have been gouged out. He has nothing left. They've captured him and debilitated them, him. And they begin to make fun of him. And they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests. In other words, put me between the load-bearing pillars that I may lean against them. Next slide. Now the house was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there was about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Can you stop there and hear the desperation in Samson's voice? He has squandered his potential, hasn't he? He's been one leg in and one leg out this whole time and finally he prays to God, oh God, give me strength just this one last time. I just sense in Samson's heart a brokenness but also a desire to do the right thing. I think he knows what's right. I think he knows that the Philistines who have oppressed God's people and been done violence to God's people really deserve to die, but he also knows that if he pushes those pillars down, they will die, but who will also die with them? He will, because he's standing underneath the roof. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, and on his right hand uh, on the one, and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at this death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Esthel and the tomb of Manoah and his father. And he had judged Israel for 20 years. Not a happy story about Samson. I want to point us to just one verse that I think is really uh, very fascinating and even critical in understanding not just the story of Samson, but the whole story of the book of Judges. If you've been with us this entire time in this uh, journey through the book of Judges, I'm assuming that you're a little bit like me and there's not one judge so far that we're like, I really like that guy. You know, the one who stabbed the fat king. I should, I should stab people too, you know? Like, that's not the guy we like. Gideon with his stupid requests. You know, Othniel, who was pretty good but not great. I mean, there, there's lack of faith. There's problems. Samson's got problems. Like, all of these guys are broken and busted and sinful. And God uses them. But there's not one yet that we're like, man, I'd really like to emulate that person completely. You know why? It's because this 430-year cycle that the people of God are going through is supposed to stir up within us a longing for the perfect judge, the perfect leader. In those days, there was no king in Israel, so it's supposed to stir up within us a longing for the perfect king. In fact, if you didn't hear it in that birth narrative of Samson, uh, the author of, of the book of Judges actually says that Samson began to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. 
This wasn't completed. He just started it. And so that longing that begins to develop in Israel and in, the, in God's people begins to get focused on a coming Messiah. This is exactly what's happening at this point in history in the nation of Israel. And then as David assumes the throne and David doesn't do a great job, they begin to long for a perfect king, for a perfect ruler, for a perfect judge, for a second Adam. This is Jesus. He is the perfect king, the perfect judge, the perfect ruler, the one we can emulate, the one who doesn't have any brokenness or sin, the one who rules over us perfectly. And the, or the invitation of the good news about Jesus is simply this, that God, when we were far from him, sent his son into the world in order to begin a kingdom in which we could be reconciled to God. But in order to be reconciled to God, we had to deal with this sin problem. That is to say that our sin, the wages of our sin, and our rebellion from God and his goodness and grace and his character has earned us death. And rather than paying our own penalty, Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty on our behalf, that he took in his body what, was, uh, what we deserved and what we earned, and now we can be reconciled to God and our sins be forgiven if and when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And I know that those two words, repentance and faith, are kind of churchy words, so let me define them. Repentance simply means this. I was running in this direction here, and I make a 180-degree turn and run in this direction here. That's really what the word repentance means. In other words, I was running towards selfishness. I was running towards lust, like Samson. I was running towards violence. I was running towards self-interest. I was running towards greed. I was running toward whatever, and I'm going to put that down die to my old life and run in this direction and completely submit my life to the authority of the king. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, this invitation of the good news about Jesus and forgiveness of sin sounds great, but I'm not ready to completely submit my life to Jesus quite yet, then you're not ready to respond to the gospel. And that's okay. I pray that God will draw you to that place and I pray that you'll continue to be here and learn with us and grow with us. But the invitation of the gospel is total and complete surrender. That is repentance. Second is faith. It's placing my active trust in Jesus, not just now, but for the rest of my life and leaning my entire life on what he's done and the work he's done on the cross and his resurrected body and the fact that he reigns now as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and I participate in the continual bringing of of the kingdom on this earth until one day he comes back to finish it. See, Samson just started it. Jesus will finish it. The author and perfecter of our faith, he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. This is the invitation of the gospel. And I wanted to give some of you who have never responded to God before the opportunity to pray here in a moment and respond to the good news about Jesus. Second, is I've got a sense, and I have had all week as I've uh, studied the life of Samson and read these chapters in Judges, if there's some folks in this room and they're living in the one leg, one out, or one leg in, one leg out type of Christianity. You're living like Samson. Maybe you've got a vow. Maybe you made a promise to God. Maybe you made a commitment to God in the past. But the reality is you're just going one little compromise after the other. One little compromise after the other. 
things that you don't think are that big a deal. You know what? I'm not going to pray all that much today. I'm not going to go to church on Sunday or whatever it is. And those little compromises are leading up to big consequences because you're effectively rejecting God's grace and rejecting God's rule and reign in your life. Yes, you have responded to Jesus before and said yes to the good news about Jesus. You're redeemed and adopted into his family, but you've walked away from God one little step at a time. I wanted to invite you today to renew your commitment to Jesus and begin to pursue his design for your life. So I want to invite you to pray with me. If you would bow, close your eyes if you would. It's not to, you know, it's not the biblical posture of prayer, it's just to block out distractions. Just between you and God, the first group of people I want to address is those who maybe have never responded to the invitation of the gospel before. The invitation is this, repent, turn from your old life, and believe. Place your trust in Jesus. For forgiveness of sin, for adoption into the kingdom, and to be aligned with the only true king. In order to do that, God sent his son into the world to take the penalty that you and I were supposed to pay, to pay the price you and I were supposed to pay. He went to the cross on your behalf and on mine in order to extend forgiveness to you, in order to be gracious to you, in order to extend the invitation of adoption into his family, in order to bless you beyond what you could have asked or imagined because of his unfathomable grace. And just as we talked about early in the sermon today, that he is calling out to you even when you're not calling out to him. He's responding to a need in your life that maybe you haven't even identified before. And a prayer goes something like this. God, I recognize that you're king and that you sent your son in order to reconcile the two of us. I accept what he did on the cross. I accept your forgiveness and I own my own sin and rebellion. And I submit my life now to you. There's no special words. It's not a magic prayer. You just make it your own. And if that's you today, you can be assured that God has forgiven you and adopted you and you're part of his family, no matter what you've ever done. And then for some of you, like I said, I just get this sense, and I think it's from the spirit of God that you're living in a one leg in, one leg out kind of Christianity, a little like Samson. You got a lot of potential. You got a lot of opportunity but you're squandering it with the things of the world and getting distracted by lust or greed or whatever. So for most of those folks, uh, those are folks who have been in church for a little while, folks that kind of even know how to pray. I'll let you do business with God to confess your sin, to repent, to enjoy his forgiveness, and then make a commitment to walk in the newness of life that he has for you. God, thank you for this opportunity to worship today. Thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you, God, that um, it is not up to me to draw men and women to yourself, but God, because the Son of Man is lifted up, you will draw all men to yourself. Pray that we have lifted Jesus up today even as we look at this foreshadowing of Jesus in the life of Samson. God, teach us what it means to be wise decision makers, teach us what it means to be your followers, shape within us an affection for Jesus and a commitment to um, live as he lived.
In Jesus' name, amen.